Hey everybody, it's Eric Torenberg, co-founder, partner of Village Global, a network-driven venture firm. And this is Venture Stories, a podcast covering topics relating to tech and business with world-leading experts. Hey, everybody. Welcome to another episode of Venture Stories by Village Global. I'm here today with David Friedman, author of Machinery of Freedom, among many other many other works, and father of Patrick Friedman, who's also been on the podcast as well. David, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Glad to be here, virtually at least. Yes. And of course, uh, you're the son of, uh, of Milton Friedman. And when Patrick came on, he, he traced the intellectual uh, his, you know, sort of lineage uh, as follows. He said, uh, your, your dad, Milton, was focused on analyzing specific laws and, and uh, policies and, you know, uh, recommend, uh, recommending new ones. Uh, and you, you were focused on saying, no, that the, the system that generates these laws is is suboptimal and, and we need uh, to produce a better system uh, instead of just a patch on a broken system. Patrick is trying to actualize those ideas by creating a startup sector for governments as a way to implement your ideas and, and people who have other ideas. What would you add or edit to that uh, that characterization? That my father was interested in changes within existing institutions that would improve them, that I was interested in thinking about the question of what would be the institutions that would give you the right result. In particular, what institutions would make it in people's interest to generate the right laws. And Patry is interested in the question of what things, partly technologies, would generate the institutions that made it in people's interest to generate the right laws. That's an oversimplification, but I think that's a, a, a rough description. So in that sense, I suppose you could claim that I'm being more meta than my father and Patry being more meta than I am. Yeah. Has, uh, has Patry influenced uh, your views or, or changed your views, or did you change your, your father's views, each generation being more... Uh, huh. more that is... Since I think the main difference between me and my father was not what our views were, but what we were trying to do, it wasn't really a question of changing. That my father's opinion was that the institutions I described probably wouldn't work, but might. My opinion is that the things Patry wants to do probably won't work, but might. Uh, I don't think we know enough to be sure what institutions, or even in his case, what technologies will work. But I don't think there was, I don't think in any of those cases that there was the sort of substantive disagreement where you can say, well, here, one of us thinks he's got an argument that ought to persuade the other, uh, that clearly what my father did was very useful, probably more useful, certainly so far than what either Patry or I has done. Maybe over the century or something, what we've done will have large payoffs. That's very hard to predict. Uh, but what my father did had large payoffs within, within our lifetime. High bar to be sure. <laughs> yep. Uh, one summary of, of some of your ideas that what uh, what people call market failures or, or externalities, things that governments are actually worse at, and it, the, is the nomenclature of market failures actually a misnomer in the sense that government has more market failures than, than, than markets. That is not just government. Externalities are a particular example of, of, a, of a form of market failure. What I would say is that market failure is a real phenomenon which exists in many different contexts. That market failure, I think the simplest summary is that market failure describes a situation where individual rationality does not produce group rationality. You can imagine things going wrong for other reasons. For example, things might go wrong because we just don't have the knowledge 
you know, it, it's a failure if we don't cure AIDS. Maybe there's a way of curing AIDS, but that isn't a question of the conflict between individual rationality and group rationality. On the other hand, things like tragedy of the commons or adverse selection or rational ignorance in voting are all examples where if each individual correctly acts in his own interest, we all end up worse off as a result. And that's because the actions of one individual have costs or benefits that affect other individuals, basically, on net. If, you, if my actions help you buy $10 and hurt someone else by $10, then I've got the right incentive, at least if we count dollars. That's what we call a pecuniary externality in the jargon of economics. And, and that pattern exists in markets. It's perfectly true that a pure laissez-faire system will sometimes produce the right result. but there is, as it were, a first approximation that roughly describes markets in which that doesn't happen. And it's only because of deviations from that. So that the market failure in markets, I think of as the exception. It occurred ordinarily, if I want, if I produce a, a good, I can sell it to people who want it. And thus I can get the benefit from it. There are some goods where it's very hard to control who gets it, like a radio broadcast. And those you would expect to be underproduced in a private market. In the political system, the same situation is the norm, not the exception. That if you think about any actor in the political system, whether it's you as a voter or a lobbyist or a senator or a judge or a president, any of those people are making decisions where most of the costs and benefits go to other people. So except by chance, what's in their self-interest will not be the same thing that's in our self-interest. So in that sense, I would have said that market failure is the exception on the private market, the norm on the political market, and that's a pretty strong argument in favor of doing things on the private market rather than the political market. Yeah, and the implication there is that things that we think of as uh, in the, you know, the jurisdiction of government today, like you know, police, law, military, education, healthcare, et cetera, should, should be privatized. It, yeah, it, I, would, I would say that the idea that healthcare and education should be privatized is not a terribly radical idea. There have been, after all, lots of societies where it was the case, uh, just not modern developed societies, that I gather that at present in poor countries, education is largely privatized in the sense that in a fair number of poor countries, you have a public schooling system that doesn't work. In India, I gather about a third of the time the, the teacher doesn't show up at the set in the public school. And then you have private schools, in some cases even illegal private schools, which are very low cost, uh, using very cheap labor to teach, but which do work. So in that case, education, in fact, is privatized because the government's doing such a bad job. People are interested in that. There's a book called The Beautiful Tree, which is about this sort of situation in poor countries, which is much more common than I realized before I read it. But I would have said that what people think of as the core functions of government, which are basically police courts and national defense, there are arguments for having government do those, especially national defense, which is a pretty pure public good. But I think that there are alternatives which are which are superior. So in my first book, Machinery or Freedom, I sketched out what a private substitute for police and, and court systems for, for police enforcement and, and laws would look like. Uh, national defense, I regard as the hardest problem. 
I've got one chapter in the first edition and then another chapter in the third edition of Machinery in which I sketch out ways you might be able to produce it. And I think that depends a lot on your particular situation. That if you're a if you're a small country with, a, with with powerful enemies reasonably near you, you may not be able to raise enough resources privately to defend yourself, and you might be able to do it publicly. If you're a large country whose only adjacent neighbors are Canada and Mexico, uh, that makes it an awful lot easier to defend yourself at relatively low cost. And also, if you're a country where the population is very patriotic, where the population, a lot of the people in the population are willing to make sacrifices to benefit the country, that's going to make it easier to privately produce national defense. That if you if you look at even under current institutions, a noticeable part of the cost of national defense is produced by charity, even though we don't think about it. That World War II, you've got a lot of people giving their private firearms to the British uh, military because they were afraid of being invaded. Uh, Israel, or for that matter, the U.S. during World War II sells war bonds, which in the case of Israel, it's not war bonds, but bonds, which people know are not a very good deal, but which they're buying in order to support the military. So, but anyway, I think national defense is the hardest of those problems. And the one I really find more interesting is police and courts, because I think that one I can solve. Let's, go, let's start with courts. I asked you know, Patrick what I should talk to you about, and he, he said, see if you can get uh, my dad going on uh, economic efficiency, uh, optimal laws, and why uh, anarcho-capitalist society should generate uh, optimal laws. Sure. To begin with, for those who, the, the small number of your viewers who for some unexplainable reason haven't read Machinery or Freedom, the institutions I'm sketching there are ones where you have private firms selling the service of rights enforcement and and dispute resolution. Uh, So you are the customer of one firm out of many. You pay them some annual fee. And if somebody robs you, you call them up and they try to deal with it. And the obvious problem that occurs to everybody is what if I think you've robbed me? You claim you haven't. And we have different rights enforcement agencies. They end up fighting a war as mine, try to get the stuff back, and yours refuses. And my response is that these are profit-making corporations, firms. Wars are very expensive. The outcomes of wars are hard to predict so that uh, you don't really want a system where half the time people can rob you and get away with it and half the time you can rob them and get away with it. You'd much rather have a system where neither of you can. So it makes sense for these private firms to agree in advance on arbitration, to each pair of firms to agree on a private court that will settle any dispute between their customers, and they will abide by that that, that verdict. What enforces this agreement? This is a world without a government. The fact that they're repeat players, that if when my side loses the case, I ref- my agency refuses to go along, then it knows that next time when your side loses the case, you won't go along. We're both worse off than if we both behave uh, honestly, essentially. That's the basic logic. And in that system, the laws are being created by the private courts, which are arbitration agencies. But what's it in their interest to do is to create the laws that their customers, the rights enforcement agencies, would like to have. And what is it in the interest of the rights enforcement agencies to do to purchase, as it were, the laws their customers would like to have? So that the values of the customers, as in other market circumstances, get reflected in what's produced. And that's a brief sketch. And I 
have a whole chapter in the third edition of Machinery discussing some circumstances in which it doesn't work for specific reasons, essentially market failure on the market for law. But at least there's some sort of first approximation. What you're getting is a situation where if a particular legal change is worth $10 million to customers of my agency and negative $5 million to customers of your, of your agencies, the two agencies will agree on that change, possibly with some side payments between them or agreeing to go the other way on some other issue they dispute on so that the value to the customers of the legal rule is being reflected in, as it were, the bargaining positions taken by the rights enforcement agencies that they are customers of. So that's a very brief summary. Economic efficiency, as I see it, is a proxy for maximum utility, utilitarian objective. It's an imperfect proxy that it really comes, I think, from the work of Alfred Marshall, although he didn't use the term economic efficiency. And the basic idea is consider any change in anything, putting on a tariff, abolishing the war on drugs, whatever. You could imagine asking everybody affected, how much would you pay to either get that change or prevent it? Suppose you had an honest answer to all of those questions, which you wouldn't, of course, but imagine you did. You could then add up the effect. You could say, all right, here are all the people who are in favor of the change. Treat those as positive. Add up those values, and that's the total value to everybody in the world of getting the change. Take all the people who are opposed to the change. Treat those as negatives. Add them up. That's the total disvalue of the change. If the sum of the whole thing is positive, then it's an improvement. If the sum of the whole thing is negative, then it's a worsening. And you could then describe improvements as increases in economic efficiency and worsenings as decreases in economic efficiency. So it's a way of sort of solving the problem of how do you evaluate a change that affects lots of people? Because you are very unlikely to get a change which only benefits people. Then you need some way of trading off benefits to you against costs to me. And Marshall's approach is you do it by saying how much would each of us pay to get it or prevent it. And if, if, you, if you're a utilitarian, which I'm not as it happens, I think maximizing human happiness is the good thing, but it's not the only good thing. But from that standpoint, economic efficiency is an imperfect measure of utility because a dollar represents more happiness to some people than other people. And that's an old criticism of it. It's a correct criticism. On the other hand, Marshall, at least, argued that in most real-world cases, you're talking about effects over large, diverse groups of people. So the differences in the value of money to them are going to sort of average out. That if, if you have a change which benefits the inhabitants of London and hurts the inhabitants of Birmingham, probably if the summed effect on the inhabitants of London is more dollars worth or pounds worth in Marshall's case, then the summed effect over the inhabitants of Birmingham, probably the total happiness effects are larger as well. That's one of several arguments you can make. But the, in a way, the most fundamental argument is that we know how to construct institutions that maximize economic efficiency, and we don't know how to construct institutions that maximize utility, because you observe dollar values by the choices people make. If I offer to sell you something and you, you agree to buy it, that's direct evidence that its value to you is at least as much as the price I'm charging. And direct evidence is value to me is no more than the price I'm charging because you agreed to buy it and I agreed to sell it at that price. So you can leverage that, the fact that people's values are revealed by their choices, 
in order to maximize economic efficiency. That's what you do with a market, essentially. Uh, we don't have any easy way of measuring how much happier I make. If something makes it. Obviously, if you just ask me, I'll say, well, getting my way makes me enormously happier, so you should always do what I want. Small children use that strategy pretty successfully. So I would argue, at least, there are a number of different arguments that I've gone through in several of my books where I discuss it, but that maximizing economic efficiency may well be as close to the ideal outcome as, we're pra- as we in practice can get even though I wouldn't say that under all possible circumstances, it would be what I wanted. If you don't identify as a utilitarian, uh, what a philosophical orientation would you identify with? Is it some hybrid or how do you define it? Yeah, I don't think, I can't give you a formula for what I want to maximize. I can say that certain things seem valuable to me, of which total happiness is certainly one of the things, and liberty is one of the things. And you could probably think of a few others. I don't know of any good formula. Uh, My philosophical position is what's called intuitionism. And if you want a detailed professional explanation of it, Michael Humer has the book on the subject. Michael Humer is a libertarian academic who I think very highly of. He's a very bright guy. And I'm perhaps prejudiced by the fact that his philosophical position is roughly the same as mine. But the basic idea, it's a form of what's called moral realism in that the assumption is that moral statements really are true or false, that they aren't merely statements of taste or prejudice or something. And then you say, how do you figure out what's morally right or wrong? And the answer is you look at your own moral perceptions. That just as I figure out what's in front of me by using my eyes or what is outside the window by using my ears and listening to the motor, then one thinks of having a sort of a moral sense in which you say, imagine that situation, does it feel good or bad, right or wrong? Uh, that's, a, again, a very short sketch, but humor's got a whole book on this, this subject. But that strikes me as the least unsatisfactory approach to a morality I know of. And if I try to engage in that exercise, I can imagine cases where a particular act increases total human happiness, and I'm against it anyway. I think I give an example of that in machinery somewhere. So I can't say I'm a utilitarian. But at the same time, the fact that something increases total human happiness is a pretty strong argument in its favor. And therefore, it makes sense to think in the, in terms of uh, what those are. Uh, would you um, sympathize with or resonate with uh, what I understand the John Stuart Mill uh, harm principle to be? In terms, uh, which I think is something along the lines of people should be free to do what they'd like as long as they're not harming others. That sounds like a good principle, although defining harming others turns out to be a non-trivial problem. I like to say that Judge Bork is the only candidate for the Supreme Court I know of who had explained in print why he wasn't a libertarian. And look what happened to him. That Bork has an article, and it's an interesting article, and part of the point he makes is that if you're thinking in the harm principle, how do you distinguish between my harming you by, say, polluting your air and my harming you by engaging in homosexual activity or non-marital sex, which you regard as as an evil thing and therefore makes you unhappy to know that I'm doing it? And so he says, if if you believe the government can make rules in order to minimize externality, you have no principle basis for, for distinguishing it. So you really in order to put some content into this idea, you somehow need a default position. You need to say, what 
are you, are you, what does or doesn't count is you're acting against me. And my intuition, at least, is that you're living a lifestyle that I dislike doesn't count as acting against me, whereas you're hitting me on the head does. So, so I think it's, I, I don't think it's a trivial distinction exactly what the harm principle means. But yeah, no, I would say that a good rule is that individuals should be free to control their own lives as long as they are not injuring other people. But I wouldn't say that's infinitely valuable. I could imagine some situation in which a small violation of individual liberty produced enormous benefits in other terms of other things I care about. I, like what? Oh, well, my extreme case, which again is in machinery, is imagine that an asteroid is heading towards Earth and it's big enough that it'll wipe out all life on Earth. And by some bizarre set of circumstances, there's a way of stopping it. But it requires my stealing something worth a nickel from somebody who doesn't care if human life is wiped out. He's a curmudgeon. Maybe he's dying himself or something. So if I steal the thing worth a nickel, I'm violating his rights by by nickel's worth. If I don't, um, no rights are violated. Asteroids can't violate rights, people's rights. They're just uh, external things, not people. So I'm not minimizing rights violation. I'm not respecting rights, and yet I would steal the nickel. So that's an ex- very, very. I've got another less extreme case along similar lines, but, but, but basically, I go through in machinery. On the one hand, the cases that make me not a utilitarian, or at least an example of a case where I'm not in favor of doing what, by any reasonable estimate, maximizes utility, and the cases which make me not a hardcore natural rights libertarian because there are situations in which I can imagine myself approving of the violation of individual rights. Robert Wright has this book called Non-Zero. The basic premise is that over time, due to language and markets and technology, our fates become more intertwined with each other. Uh, and we end up in non-zero sum relationships yes. where instead of win-lose, it's either win-win or, or lose-lose that are, 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 we become more interdependent on each other. And whether you buy that thesis or not, there are certainly examples that you just mentioned the asteroid one. Other people might mention global warming. Other people might mention artificial intelligence, you know, nuclear proliferation. You can, you, you are future imperfect, which gets into a bunch of others, uh, where these are problems that on some sense require global coordination. And we have no way of doing global coordination. Let me take a particular point with regard to global warming, which is not a question of whether it exists or even how bad it is. There are basically two responses you can make to global warming. One of them is to try to stop it. And the other is to try to take actions that will minimize the bad consequences it has. So you can imagine on the one hand, trying to reduce CO2 output, and on the other hand, building a dike along your coast so it won't flood with with sea level rise. That would be a very very simple example of the two. One very large advantage for adaptation over prevention is that prevention is a public good problem at a global level. If I choose to produce less CO2, I get something like one eight billionth of the benefit. If the U.S. chooses to produce less CO2, it gets, let me say, 8% 8% or something of the, or 5% of the benefit. So at the individual level, individual rationality tells you ignore the problem because uh, it's a public good problem. You can't, uh, even at the national level, it says. And it's even worse at the national level because there are a fair number of countries which almost certainly benefit by global warming. 
that a reasonable amount of global warming will double the effective area of Canada, right? Canada at the moment is a thin strip along the northern, uh, along the U.S. border because as you get too far north, it gets too cold. It gets warmer, more of it will be livable. Uh, also true of Norway, Sweden, probably Russia, uh, Finland, and so forth. So, uh, so it's a very, very hard, short of a world government, which strikes me as a cure worse than the disease, it's very hard to see how you're going to get rational coordination to prevent it. And what happens in practice is that lots of people use global warming as an excuse for persuading people to let them do things they want to do anyway. And very few people act as if they really themselves uh, value uh, reducing the CO2 output or in other ways controlling global warming. On the other hand, adapting to global warming is largely a private good. Some of it is entirely a private good. That, for example, one effect of global warming is that what crop variety is optimal to grow in a particular place is going to change because you will have different temperatures, different growing seasons, maybe different amounts of rainfall. But from the standpoint of the farmer, that's a private good. It's in the interest of each farmer to say, all right, how have conditions changed? Should I shift my crop variety? Pure private good, no problem at all. Even for sea level rise, depending where you are, you may just be able to dike your property. At worst, it's at a, well, most places at worst, it's a public good at the individual level, but a private good at the national level. That is, your country can dike itself. Of course, Holland has done, the Netherlands has done that for, for centuries. I think the lowest city in the Netherlands is something like seven meters below sea level. So quite aside from all the other arguments about global warming, there are big advantages to adaptation versus prevention just because it's more practical to do it. Now, I have various other things to say about global warming. If people are curious, you can go on my blog and called Ideas and see there a bunch of posts I have over the years about, about the issues and especially the fact that I'm dubious that global warming has net negative effects. It might, but I don't think we know what the net effects are. They will have good effects and bad effects, and they're both very uncertain and hard to, hard to estimate. Let's say that it was as uh, unequivocal as the asteroid. It, it was the you know the, the same situation as the asteroid. You know, clearly negative, and, and you mentioned uh, or conceded in some sense that it would be good to you know trample liberty for for a problem as clear as that. How would we go about coordinating that? Is is there a global? Well, you, you create a world government, except that's also very large and negative. So it has to be very very negative to be to, to be worth worth doing that. And you know, short of that, you can try to have agreements among countries, but governments do a very bad job of representing the interests of their, their, their population. The actual agreements that have happened with regard to global warming mostly don't seem to be very effective or to be doing very much. The U.S., which failed to uh, sign the Kyoto Agreement, is in fact one of the few countries that has followed the Kyoto Agreement, not deliberately, but because it turned out that changes in technology, fracking, made natural gas considerably cheaper than it had been before. Natural gas produces quite a lot less CO2 per unit of energy than coal does. There was a large shift towards natural gas, and so the amount of CO2 the U.S. was producing went down. But that wasn't, it wasn't because we were trying to. And probably the biggest thing we did, which we justified as, 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 as doing to prevent global warming, was the pressure for biofuels, the fact that gasoline has to have a certain amount of, uh, of, of ethanol produced by 
produced from, from, from corn, mostly from maize. And as best I can tell, current opinion is that doesn't reduce global warming. All it does is make one of the world's main foodstuffs more expensive for people outside the U.S. The U.S. is the largest producer of maize. I think we're maybe, I don't remember, 30 or 40% of the world's supply. We're turning something like a third of our maize into alcohol. So that's our contribution to global poverty. But of course, there might not be a solution. A long time ago, I taught a course at the University of Chicago undergraduate when I was actually, I was a faculty fellow at the law school, but I arranged to teach an undergraduate course. And I think the title I used was Solution Unsatisfactory, which is the title of a Heinlein short story. And the basic point of the course is that if there are only two solutions to a problem and we prove that one of them won't work, we think we're finished. But there's no guarantee that either of them will work. So what the course consisted of was each week taking some particular problem and trying to argue that there were two solutions and neither of them worked. In, in a world where we, uh, let's say the USA, uh, privatized its, its military, what would the implications of that be? For example, would something like the Cold War never have happened because we would be much more pacifist only, you know, protecting ourselves instead of, you know, getting involved or... or, or Probably. Or, you know, it, it's like depends on circumstances that if you happen to be in a situation where there's territory that you can cheaply and easily steal from a private military might do it. Uh, if you think about the people who were referred to as Danes at the time of King Alfred, that those the armies that were ravaging England and collecting Dane geld and uh, seizing land and such were not as far as I can tell national armies. They were entrepreneurial projects. Basically, you had somebody who had a good reputation as a war leader, and he would say to a bunch of other people in Norway or Denmark, hey, let's get together, invade England, and get some loot. Or maybe they'll pay us off to go away, or maybe we can grab some land. You know, land's good stuff to have. So I don't think that a private military is necessarily pacifist, but I think it's much less likely to engage in expensive military activities that don't bring it any benefit, which the U.S. government's done quite frequently. Now, also, it also depends, of course, on how you how you organize that private military, that the kind of thing I've sketched is a decentralized system in which you have, in effect, something like a militia system with a small force of professionals, maybe paid by charity, who are available to coordinate the less professional but much more numerous volunteer forces. But as a, if you want, if people are curious, the second edition of Machinery of Freedom is available as a free PDF on my website. And you can read my first chapter on national defense, the hard problem. And the third edition is a very inexpensive uh, Kindle uh, on Amazon. And you can read my second version of that in, in that one. But I think it is a hard problem. In your ideal world, how would you deal with people who couldn't afford private uh, police or, or didn't have any any resources at all? What happens to those people? And, and do you uh, accept any part of what I understand Amartya Sen's development is freedom concept, which is freedom isn't just freedom from, but also freedom you know, to you know, have enough to eat or, or any sort of basic? I think that's, I think that's a mistake. That's, it's sometimes put as a distinction between positive freedom and negative freedom. And the trouble is that my negative freedom is almost never inconsistency with your inconsistent with your negative freedom. But my positive freedom is inconsistent with both your negative freedom and your positive freedom because food I eat, you can't eat. Uh, so 
uh, in principle, at least, they're very different kinds of, of concepts, both of which sometimes get referred to as freedom. No, I would have said that if you have some people who are too poor to feed themselves, then we hope that generous people will be willing to give them food or to give them money to buy food. And if there are people who are too poor to be able to purchase even a minimal level of uh, rights enforcement, similarly, but if you think about the fact that in the U.S. at present, the amount of government expenditure that goes to police and courts is a tiny fraction, I don't know what the current numbers are, but probably a few percent of the government budget, Poor people are paying for that budget along with rich people, uh, especially at the state level where uh, taxes are largely uh, sales taxes, which are paid by everybody. Property taxes, which show up in part in the cost of uh, rental housing, uh, which is paid by poor people as well as rich people. So I would have said that uh, you're talking about poor people who are now paying, let us say, let me make it up, $5,000 a year for government. How, how, what would happen to them if they had to pay $300 a year for a private substitute government? Now, there might be some who couldn't do it, but I think you're talking about pretty small numbers. And I say the argument applies even more strongly for food than it does for, for rights enforcement. Furthermore, if you look at the present situation, the people who don't get rights enforcement are typically the poor. If you look at where high crime rates are in the U.S., it's typically in places like the inner city, which are places largely inhabited by poor people. Uh, so I think on the whole, uh, if, if you if you look at, at sort of inner city areas, the poor people are wearing pretty nearly the same clothes as the rest of us. They're eating pretty nearly the same food as the rest of us, but they are getting very much worse education, schooling than the rest of us and very much worse for police protection than the rest of us. Those are two services provided by government. You, some people sort of, uh, you know, especially in the new cities um, or charter cities movement, sort of view places like Singapore as the ideal, uh, something that has a strong, you know, market-based system, but then also is a sort of like Apple in its c- control, but also sort of you know, execution. Um, and that the ideal world is being able to choose between uh, between different sort of corporate governments and having a, the ability to exit. The, the way I sometimes put it is that the best form of government is competitive dictatorship. That that, after all, is how we run restaurants and hotels. I have no vote at all on what's on the menu at the restaurants I eat at, but an absolute vote on which restaurant I, I, I go to. So where you can do it, that seems to me uh, a desirable uh, form if you're going to have government. But in practice, most people have fairly high costs of moving, uh, less than in the past, uh, in part because English is becoming a world language. Uh, and an awful lot of people speak it and therefore could move to other places where people speak it, in part because the Internet means that people can maintain interaction as we're doing at the moment without being geographically in the same place. At least some jobs you can do that. My daughter is a self-employed freelance editor. And a few years ago, when we took a trip to, among other places, India, she was doing the same work in New Delhi that she would have been doing in San Jose because it was all online. So there are some things that are making people more, more mobile, uh, and that at least reduces how bad government, government can be. Uh, I don't know if you've ever read anything by C. Northcott Parkinson, who's best known for Parkinson's Law, uh, but he was a British academic who was very good at 
writing humorous essays, making serious points. Uh, and the, the famous one, Parkinson's Law, has two statements. One of them is work expands to fill the time available. And the other is the number of people employed by a bureaucracy increases at a constant rate, independent of whether the amount of work to be done increases, decreases, if there's any work at all. And this sounds like a joke, but he's got data. He actually gives figures on the employment of the, I remember what it's called, but essentially the office in London that was managing the British Empire during a time when the British Empire was disappearing. And he has figures for the onshore establishment of the British Navy during the time when the British Navy went from the most powerful Navy in the world to barely uh, able to beat Argentina. And in each case, the number of people kept going up. He also has another essay where he's discussing the limitation on taxation. And the way he puts it is the productive people of the world have discovered by long and bitter experience that they will usually have to pay about 10% of their income to some gangster, feudal lord, or Department of Internal Revenue. It matters little what you call it. When the rates get above that, the Israelites start looking at the atlas. There are probably better places to be than Egypt. Now, he's too optimistic about what the level is, but he is right that one real constraint on the ability of governments to mistreat people is the possibility of exodus. I think we're observing in Venezuela at present, which has actually lost a noticeable fraction of its population as a result of very bad government government policies. Uh, so, so yes, that, that is, is one constraint. But as it happens, I think that we can do better than that in the sense that you could have a situation where the equivalent of government, your rights enforcement agency, arbitration agency system, isn't geographical. And therefore, you can exit without moving. You can exit by simply, just as I can exit from my insurance company without moving. I just change who I send my checks to. So in that sense, I think you can get competition. Now, it's harder to do, and maybe the best we'll be able to do for a while is geographic competition, but ideally, I'd like it to be non-geographic. And one thing I've discussed in a number of places is the possibility that the internet might mean that geography doesn't matter very much over time. In particular, if you have uh, public key encryption sort of fully implemented, what I think of as a world of strong privacy, so that what happens online is invisible to third parties, including the IRS. You could then have a situation where real space is controlled by governments, cyberspace is essentially anarcho-capitalism, and the real space governments are really landlords. That is, they're competing with themselves pretty directly because people can move pretty easily because most of what they're doing is in cyberspace and not in real space. So, so that's one possible route to a more attractive world, which I'm sure I've discussed somewhere, but not sure I can tell you where at the moment. You've made a lot of parallels to insurance as it relate, relates to you know police and not a lot of parallels. That is, insurance is interesting, but it's not. It isn't really the same thing. The closest, actually, analogy is a variety of past societies where law enforcement was private and decentralized. Uh, My most recent book at this point is a book called Legal Systems Very Different from Ours. The starting point of the book is that all human societies face about the same problems. They deal with them in an interesting variety of different ways, and they're all grown-ups, and therefore you should take each of those seriously. So I start with Imperial China, which is a legal system which, with some interruptions, lasted for about 2,000 years and had a very interesting society under it. And I then look at a whole lot of other ones. 
And several of the societies I look at have what I like to describe as feud law, meaning that the basic mechanism is if you wrong me, I threaten to harm you unless you compensate me. And I then have a chapter discussing what are the problems that particular legal system raises, how various real-world societies dealt with those problems. So if people are curious, the book is available as a Kindle for, I think, $3 or $5, something like that. I try to make my stuff cheap. And I run through a number of such societies and then a chapter trying to explain how that works. So I I like to say that when I wrote Machinery of Freedom, I now conclude I was reinventing the wheel. That is to say that I was describing a fancy version in a modern developed society of something primitive versions of which have existed in the past in a fair number of places and times. Is is your biggest, if you were to summarize the crux of your problem with governments that we sort of understand today, like republics or, or democracies, is not just that they're you know, incompetent, partly because they don't have skin in the game, but also that they're designed to grow bigger and bigger until they've... Sort of I wouldn't say designed to grow bigger and bigger. I think there have been governments that have made a roughly constant, I think through the 19th century, at least in terms of percentage of GNP, my impression is that England and the US both, it was about 10% for most of a century, though I'm not really an expert on that. I may be I may be wrong on that. No, I would have said that the political institutions, the political market, is a market which does which cannot be expected to produce in general the right the right results. And that's for well understood reasons. Uh, and that's my market failure on the political market. That's public choice theory, a bunch of stuff of that sort. That you know, there's this famous quote from Winston Churchill that democracy is the worst system of government ever devised by the mind of man, except for all the others that have been tried from time to time. And people usually take that as a defense of democracy. But it seems to me what it really is, is a critique of government. He's saying the very best form of government we have works very badly. Well, my conclusion from that is to do as few things through government as possible. And the reason I ask that is to sort of set up the question, why do you think People tend to like government then. then. Or, or, or why, why don't more people, and there are plenty and they're growing, but why, why aren't most people anarchists then? It's a good question. Uh, I think part of the answer is that decentralized coordination is harder to understand than centralized coordination. If you say, look, we've got things that have to get done, the natural intuition is, well, then let's organize people to do it. Let's have, you know, some. So if you think about the problem, we want to make automobiles. Well, in order to make automobiles, we need steel and aluminum and glass. So there are got to be somebody deciding who produces how much iron, who produces how much coal and so forth. It's fairly easy to imagine coordination via central control. And if you think about it for a while, you realize that it gets harder and harder to work the bigger the system coordinated is for familiar reasons. It's much harder to understand how you get coordination without any central control. Uh, And that's basically what price theory, the explanation of of how markets work, is about. And it's a decentralized system where prices function as signals, where the fact that there isn't enough iron being produced for the number of cars people are trying to produce means the price of iron goes up. The price of iron goes up, makes it interest of people to mine more iron. It makes the interest of people who are using iron to substitute other things for it, thus free up iron for cars and so forth and so on. That's about a semester or maybe two semesters worth of price theory to understand that you're actually getting 
not only a form of rational coordination, but a considerably more rational coordination than you could get from the center, except for very small groups of people. So that's part of the answer, at least, that, that given that individuals are rationally ignorant, that from the standpoint of a single individual in a society, his having incorrect views has almost no cost for him, since his views have only a tiny, tiny effect on what happens to the society. Therefore, people have a tendency to believe whatever is easiest to believe, easiest to understand, makes them feel good, things of that sort. And unfortunately, the argument for doing, for having government do things is easier to understand than the argument for having them done privately in a decentralized market system. You know, uh, decentralized systems uh, to date have, have always been more uh, effective uh, because, you know, central authority couldn't know, uh, couldn't, you know, aggregate all that information or process all that information. But is it possible in a world where uh, yeah, all data or, or most data becomes legible by computers and advances in artificial intelligence that uh, seeing like a state can actually be more effective than seeing like an individual. You think of things like Google and Facebook, massive centralized. I think it's, I think it's very, very hard to imagine how you could do that. Part of the problem is that the knowledge necessary to solve the problem is itself dispersed. That in particular, I know how much I value things. No outside person knows that. So if you have a market system where my values are revealed by my decisions, you can do it. Whereas if somebody's got to decide what job I should have, what I should be doing, what I should be buying, what they should produce for me, it has to somehow get a hold of that information in order to make the right decisions. In addition, even if you think about it just as sort of a mathematical optimization problem, it's not as if you're optimizing 100 variables. Uh, you're optimizing more like 100 million variables, probably more than that. Because after all, every apple is different in some sense. It's in a different place, comes ripe at a different time, is of a different variety. You know, walk through a supermarket, and if you re or better, walk through Home Depot, and just look at how many different things are there. And yet, not only do you have all of the different things in a Home Depot, you have those same things in different pl- located in different places. A, a screw here is not a perfect substitute for a screw 100 miles away because I have to drive 100 miles in order to get it, whereas the one here I can use to fix a loose board right now. Uh, so I think you're talking about a kind of optimization problem that is very hard to imagine solving. You know, if you say we've got infinite computing power, then presumably that disappears, but I don't think you're going to have infinite computing power. You just have a whole lot more. Do you reject the idea that a company like Amazon can know us better than we know ourselves. Like Amazon knows everything I've ever, ever read or ever bought and Facebook and Apple know every conversation I've ever had that I can't, I can't even remember and they can use data to process and make sense of it. But I don't think, I don't think at least, as far as I can tell, neither Apple nor Amazon can deduce you from that information. Whereas you've got you right there to, to look at, so to speak. So no, I think the right thing is what Amazon actually does is that they make informed guesses of what you want and then you buy it or don't buy it. And sometimes they, you know, make good guesses and more often they make bad guesses because it's a hard problem. One of the things that I'm a little puzzled by is how many people dislike the idea that Google, say, or Amazon is collecting information on them in order to sell things to them. That my feeling is that I'd much rather be shown ads for things I might want to buy than ads for things I don't want to buy. The, the way I, I think I used to put it was 
I no longer wear a watch, but I used to wear a Casio data bank watch, which had these little buttons on it and was sort of a calculator and various other things. It even had a little tiny video game, a very primitive video game on the watch. And the fact that I was wearing that is buying a Casio data bank from the standpoint of the sellers of gadgets is like blood in the water for a shark. But that's fine. I'd much rather uh, receive ads for gadgets that I'd be interested in than have somebody call me up at dinner time offering to refinance my non-existent mortgage. So the more they know about me, the better they can tailor the offers they make to me to things I might want to accept. After all, they don't get anything if, if, if they call me up and I, I don't accept it. So that's a different question, but there clearly is a lot of people who find the idea of somebody like Google or, or, or Amazon knowing a lot about them scary, whereas to me it seems on the whole in my interest for them to know stuff about them. Yeah. To that end, a couple of questions come to mind. One is, is there a role at all for any sort of centralized systems or, or what do centralized systems do better than decentralized systems? And then two, to your specific point we were just talking about, uh, do you worry about, you know, people criticize sort of surveillance government do you worry, you know, some people are not criticizing surveillance capitalism. Is that, is that a concern you have of them having? I think government surveillance is a concern. And one worry about surveillance capitalism is some of the information governments might be able to get a hold of. I actually have an old journal article, I think, on the question basically of is, is privacy a good thing? Because a lot of people assume it is. And the best argument I can see in favor of privacy is that it is a defense against opponents who have a very large advantage over you in the access to force. That is to say, one way of protecting my stuff is to be able to physically defend it. Another way is to have people not know it's there. And in dealing with other human beings, the former way is usually sufficient. In dealing with governments, the government's got much more force than I do, so they can take stuff away from me. But if I can control information about what I have and information about me in general, that gives me a kind of defense. So I think that's a real argument uh, for privacy. The case for privacy in contemporary debates and applied ethics, I think, is an essay in a book, actually, and privacy in technology, it, which is it was, it was an article. Well, actually, in another book, in the right to privacy. But if people are curious, go to my webpage, which is daviddfriedman.com. And if you Google the academic part of it, if you search the academic part of it, you will find a couple of essays on privacy, one of which is really about why privacy is or isn't a good thing. What about the, the, the part on the centralized versus decentralized systems? I've been studying that. Yeah, the, the, the answer is that there are what economists refer to as economies of scale. There are cases, in fact, it's typically true that over some range of size, a larger firm can do a better job than a smaller firm. And in some cases, that's true up to very small sizes. If you think about restaurants, for example, that, you know, the optimal size restaurant is your, you know, corner restaurant, so to speak, roughly. Uh, If you look at what seem to be mega firms and restaurants, they usually turn out to be franchise systems where something is being provided by the center, but the actual restaurant is being run by somebody local who owns it. So, but, but an economy of scale could keep going. Just that depends on the particular technology. Um, so that Facebook, for example, seems to have economy of scale up to a very high level. Uh, you might be able to produce a decentralized competitor to Facebook. Nobody has done it so far. Usenet, 
back in the days when it was important was a decentralized system which served some of the same functions, but I assume people would now be using Usenet still there. People would be using it instead of Facebook if they didn't find Facebook uh, was better for their purposes. So no, I'm not saying that you would never have very large organizations. Uh, The sort of classic work on this subject is an old essay by Ronald Coase, one of his two famous essays, uh, which is called something like The Theory of the Firm in which he is pointing out that if centralized organization was really entirely unworkable, then there wouldn't be any firms. We would do everything by subcontracting, where you would have everybody be a separate individual, and the way you would build a car would be to make a deal with somebody to make a tire and somebody to do this and somebody to do that. And he then, Coast then discusses why you don't get that, because there are transaction costs, interactions on the market. And then his argument is that the size of firm you end up with is really has to do with the trade-off between the costs of transactions in the market and the costs of the inefficiency associated with centralized control. And that the market itself, as it were, balances those two and you end up with firms where if the firm got bigger, it would be less efficient because of the problems of controlling large organizations. If it got smaller, it would be less efficient because it would have to negotiate with people to provide things it's now providing in-house. That's sort of the classic discussion of it. That's one of the two articles which is which are responsible for Ronald Coase getting and deserving a Nobel Prize. I want, I want to circle back to some of the stuff on law, specifically around punishment. We were just talking about how you know, your ideal system is something like competitive dictatorship where you can sort of, you know, you have uh, exit and, and voice. But my question there is, what do you do with the criminals? With that, would depend, that would depend on what was the outcome of the market for law. And you might say that the criminals get executed. You might probably aren't going to put them in jail. That's pretty expensive, though you could conceivably. It might be that they have to work off their fines. It might be that they get executed and their organs forfeit. You can imagine all sorts of more or less unpleasant possible outcomes. But just as if I say I think automobiles ought to be made on the market, that doesn't require them to know how to design automobiles. Similarly, if I want law to be made on the market, that doesn't tell you what that law will be. Uh, and you know, I can think about that. I can look at how various societies have done have done this. And I've got things I've written about, in particular, the advantages and disadvantages of efficient punishments. That if you think about it, a fine is a really efficient punishment because what the convicted defendant loses, somebody else gets. And that would apply to a tort damages as well. A execution or flogging is somewhat less efficient in that the cost to the criminal is neither a cost or a benefit to anybody else. Imprisonment is still less efficient in that you have both the cost to the criminal of being locked up and the cost to other people of running the prison. So you're tempted to say you should have the most efficient punishment, but the problem is that a really efficient punishment means that it pays somebody to impose it. That's one of the things we worry about with the tort system, that you may sue people not because they've really harmed you, but because they've got lots of money and you think with luck you can persuade a jury uh, to give you some of it. So you've got both advantages and disadvantages to efficient punishments. Uh, And I've got an old article uh, on... Uh, the question of uh, efficient punishment. And I also discussed the question in my book, Law's Order, which is my book on economic analysis of law. 
But, you know, I can tell you what, how to think about the question, but I can't tell you what the outcome will be. And the outcome will probably be different in different societies. That if you have a very poor society, then the kind of imprisonment we have for every one prisoner you lock up, two people starve. Because you're not only taking him out of the labor force, you've got to feed him and guard him. So in that society, executing criminals may be the right solution or making them temporary slaves. Uh, you know, you can imagine a lot of different, different possible. In a much richer society, you say, well, we're really worried about what's going to happen if you can enslave people because you're going to try to enslave them whether or not they've done anything wrong. We don't want to take that risk. So therefore, we're going to settle for costly forms of punishment because the costly form of punishment is one where nobody has an incentive to impose it except in order to deter crimes. So those are all going to depend on the particular society and circumstances and technology. All of that is going to be relevant. Uh, there's this concept uh, called uh, restorative justice. Are you familiar with it at all? The idea that you ought to make up to somebody who has lost his loss. And in a sense, that's the theory of tort law, that the sort of theoretical rule for tort is that you make good the other person's losses. And going back to what I said much earlier, part of the problem is that it's not clear what your baseline is. It's not clear what people are entitled to. So one of the points that Coase made is that the standard analysis of externalities going back to Pigou treats an externality as a cost that I impose on you. But if you actually think of real-world examples, mostly they're the costs of things both of us do, that my air pollution would not be a cost if you didn't happen to live downwind. And you can think of other cases. uh, That one sort of somehow feels wrong to us. But if you think about airplane noises at an airport, the cost isn't just a result of having airplanes land at the airport. It's also a cost. It's also a result of the fact that the land under the approach to the airport is being used for houses instead of grain. All right. Grain isn't bothered by noise. People living in it are. So you really want to somehow get the right incentives to bow on both sides. Uh, so in that sense, restorative justice assumes that we know what the outcome ought to be. Uh, and we don't always. I mean, in some cases, it seems pretty obvious when somebody's robbed you. Uh, but in other cases, it, it's a good deal less obvious. Uh, in addition to which, you've got the problem I was just pointing at, that if your rule is restorative justice, that's a justification for seizing stuff from one person who you claim in wronged you in order to benefit another person. And then you have to worry that if the person who claims to be injured is in a better position to manipulate the system than the person who he claims injured him, it becomes an excuse for using using force to take stuff for people. So you have to, as it were, trade off uh, advantages and disadvantages. And one of the things I think you learn when you think seriously about the law is that the issues are a lot more complicated than people at first think. You were talking about uh, sort of just or in some sense, assuming we know, we know it's right. You know, we are one of the global conversations that we're having is sort of what is truth and, and fake news. And, and, and in some sense is your system is the arbiter that in some sense that the, the customer is, is, is always right. That the customers are always, the market always determines what, what is truth? Or, or are there any circumstances which truth supersedes the market in some sense? What that is, I don't have to agree with the market outcome. The market outcome could be wrong. I just don't know of any institutions that will do a better job of giving the right result than the kind of market for law and law enforcement that I've described. 
That doesn't mean it will always be right. And one of the points I make in machinery is that anarcho-capitalism, the the, the claim that anarcho-capitalism is libertarian is not a, a claim that is true by definition. It is a theorem to be proved or partly proved not a matter of definition, because you could imagine a stateless society where the laws that are coming out of this competitive system are oppressive ones. And I sketch out circumstances in which a anarcho-capitalist system might have laws against using drugs. I don't. The argument I make is that the conditions necessary to give that outcome are also conditions which would give you those laws to get out of government, because it requires a society where a very large number of the people feel very very strongly on that issue, but it could happen. So it's not like the market outcome has to be what I agree with. It's just that I don't know a better way of getting what I agree with. And, you know, I could imagine a case where there was a market outcome that I agreed with sufficiently strongly so that I was willing to conceal a criminal or, you know, break somebody out free of jail if I knew how to do it or things of that sort. It's not impossible. You earlier asked the biggest criticism you have of governments is that, that, and you said that they sort of systematically don't work and some, not to put words in your mouth, but some, some version of that or make worse decisions or have more failures than markets do. Uh, and so the next question is, but in what system, in what cases do in cases where there are actual market failures, governments actually make okay decisions. And, and the one example you get, we gave is the, is the asteroid uh, example, but you mentioned that. I don't, I don't know that governments would make the right decision for that one. That was the question of my imaginary case was not a government making a decision, but a private individual deciding to make a minor violation of another private individual's rights in order to, to produce a desirable outcome. And that's logically possible. There are going to be individual cases where the government would do better than the market. The problem is that there's no mechanism once you create a government to restrict it to only doing those things. If you say there's a particular case where we know there's market failure on the in the private market, if this happens to be one where market failure is less serious in the governmental market, say one where it's easy to see what the right thing is to for the government to do, so uh, even rationally ignorant voters will vote for the right thing. Uh, that would be a case where you would get a benefit from government. But the problem is that we don't have a way, at least I don't know of any way of restricting governments to only do those things. Related to that, one of the first things you talk about machinery freedom, if, if, maybe the first one actually, is, is property, the, the importance of property, uh, pop, yes. property and how you can uh, protect property in a, in a stateless world. Glenn Weil wrote this book, Radical Markets, basically arguing in favor of, I think it's called Harbinger taxing or Harbinger taxes, where basically you you put a value on your house, and if someone wants to buy it, they, they can. The, early, the earliest version of this approach, which is discussed in my legal systems very different book that I that, that I know of, uh, is in Periclean Athens. Uh, it wasn't quite the same, but it was pretty close. Uh, they, their system for producing public goods was that if you were one of the richest Athenians, you had to produce a public good every other year. So the relevant magistrate would come to you and say you know that we're planning to send the team to the Olympics this year. Congratulations, you're the sponsor. And there were two ways of getting out of it. One of them was to show that you were already doing one of these things or did one last year because every other year. The other was to show that there was another Athenian who was richer than you were, didn't do one last year and wasn't doing one this year. And therefore he should do the one that you've been assigned. And then the puzzle is, how, how in a society without banks, without accountants, without IRS, how do I prove that you're richer than I am? Well, you've just described the appropriate uh, approach to, to answering that. What is the equivalent of a harbor tax? Sort of self-reporting? 
sell what it. makes it in your interest to tell the truth? Other people can buy my house. <laughs> the the solution is that I offer to trade everything I own for everything you own. And if you turn me down, you've admitted you're richer than I am. <laughs> yes. And as somebody pointed out to me, the same mechanism is in common use in the U.S. at present for what are called claiming races in horse racing. That the way a claiming race works is you have, say, a $5,000 claiming race. By entering my horse in that race, I am agreeing to sell it for $5,000 to anybody who wants to buy it. And it's an ingenious way of getting a race at which all the, which all the horses are about equally good. That if my horse is much better than the other ones, it's worth more than $5,000. So I don't want to win the race and lose the course. If it's much worse than a $5,000 horse, I know I'll lose. So why should I enter? So it's, so it's the same thing. The, I don't really think of it as a, as a harbor attacks. The trying to remember, because I originally saw it from somebody, from someone else who I'm now forgetting, but it's not the general approach is sometimes referred to as a self-revealing property tax. And it has some advantages, clearly. One of the advantages is that it eliminates a lot of the argument for eminent domain, because it means that everybody has already got a price on his property, so you don't have to worry about holdouts. And therefore, if you want to build a freeway you don't have to seize land. You just have to buy land at the price people set on it. And it pays not to set too high a price because the higher the price you set, the more taxes you're going to pay. On the other hand, uh, there are problems with the fact that people have sort of various sentimental attachments to their own property. Uh, you now don't have security of property. Somebody can kick you out of your own house unless you set a very high price. And if you set a very high price, you pay high taxes. So there are certainly arguments both before and against it. But it's, it's a fairly old idea, which I've, well, very old idea if you consider the Athenian example, which I've discussed in a number of, a number of places. I want to address some of the common criticisms, or I want to list them and then have you address some of the common criticisms people have with, with markets. First, I'll, I'll list them and then we'll, we'll go one by one. Uh, one is that it elevates material values uh, at the expense of perhaps spiritual or, or other values. Uh, two, that it removes uh, or, or hurts the sort of fabric of community. Three is that it promotes uh, job loss uh, or will promote jo- job loss in the future. Uh, four is that it, it uh, promotes inequality. The rich get richer faster than the poor get richer. Uh, and, and fifth is that it's inherently uh, unsustainable, that eventually we will not be able to, to handle all, all the progress and all the growth. L- let's let's focus on uh, uh, on the first one, uh, the uh, material values. Uh, and the sort of philosophical question of there's, there's clearly some parts of life that can't be quantified or can't be captured in, in markets. Should we be trying to quantify and capture the, those, those parts of life? Should, should money sort of be redesigned as to take into account a different kind of social value? I understand how that is what that means. That is certainly one of the things that uh, people care a lot about is finding a mate. Part of the process of finding a mate you can pay for. Uh, you know, there's what just lunch, I think it's called is a matchmaking service or various, uh, dating apps are, are cases where you're paying someone to help you. That doesn't, you know, guarantee you one, you still have to find somebody who you can love and who's going to love you, which is, I guess, a spiritual value, but I don't see any particular interference. That is the, the part of it that can be provided with material stuff and other people's labor you provide through the market and the part of it that requires your interaction with another human being and evaluating them and deciding whether or not you love them and whether or not they love you, you do in other ways. And similarly, truth, I guess, is a non-material value, but you can 
pay for books, you can write books, you can try to persuade people, and the marketplace is a fairly useful way of making it possible for people to offer their arguments, look at their arguments, and so forth. So I don't really see where there's a conflict between spiritual values and and material values in that sense. And I find it hard to see how you would embed the the spiritual values, as it were, in your price system. Or putting it differently, the spiritual values are already embedded in your price system because they're one of the things determining what you'll pay for. All right? The very fact that you want to find yourself a woman who who will love you and you will love is part of the reason you're willing to pay just lunch or okay cupid i guess is one of the things of that sort for the service that will help you find such a person uh, and similarly your behavior in your courtship activity and it's not just courtship that the fact that you care about what's religiously true shows up in your willingness to do various things and doing some of those things may be facilitated by money you may want to books by humor's book on intuitionism or or something else go to a retreat which requires that you pay rent at the place they're having the retreat and so forth so i don't really see where there's a conflict there that that there's a certain sense in which all, all values are non-material because the values are all their effect of something on you, but you have material things that, that produce them. Let me ask you another, another version of my question, which is not all value is captured. Let's say you have this conversation uh, with me and someone listens to it and then starts the next Google or Facebook. Right. Sure, that's, that, 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 that's an externality problem. And clearly some of it is true that I believe that in my writing and things like this, I'm producing a public good. I'm making it uh, probably not the next Google or Facebook, maybe the next Uber. Uh, some people would argue that something machinery or freedom is, is presaging Uber, although not exactly. But at least I believe that the ideas I put out are likely to make the world a little bit more, a little bit freer, and they'll be freer for everybody. That'll be a be a, a general benefit. But we don't have a way. Uh, of capturing that. That is the, all I can get is what people are willing to pay me for my services. And beyond that, I've got to do it because I want to do it. You could imagine, a wor- I mean, patents try to do, or digital rights try to do this, for example. For example, like if I put out a song or put out an article uh, and then you remix that song or remix that article in, in a world in which there's like brain, human, you know, computer interfaces, you could imagine, you know, we could track someone listens to this podcast and then goes and you know and we talk about the next uber that someone goes out and creates uber and that's somehow you know digitally tracked very hard to do that is you could certainly there's certainly some range of how much you can treat as property so that one can imagine a system where the things covered by patent and copyright are not treated as property at all that was the case through much of history you could imagine a situation in which we have a broader coverage that one of the things I discuss in Law's Order is imagining that you propertize the English language, that you say that anybody who creates a new word then has got property rights on it and you've got to pay them a licensing fee to use it. And I discuss why there would be some benefit, much larger costs to doing things that way. So that's my, ch- I have a chapter on property followed by a chapter on intellectual property and laws order in which I try to sketch out the costs and benefits of treating something as, as, as property. And it depends a whole lot on the particular technology. There's an old article I'm rather fond of, the title of which I think is The Approximate Optimality of Aboriginal Property Rights. And the point that the author is making is that if you look at primitive societies, 
they have different different levels of property rights. Some of them, for example, have property rights in land and some of them don't. And we're tempted to say, well, the reason they don't have property rights in land is they're too primitive to have thought of the idea. But then he points out there are some societies that have property rights in land part of the year. So they understand the idea just fine. And you then realize that for some uses of land, property rights in land make a lot of sense, for example, for growing crops. On the other hand, if you're using your land to hunt large animals across, property rights in land mean that I've got to stop chasing the deer in order to get permission from you to cross your land, by which time the deer runs away. So in that situation, you might want property rights in the deer. You might want to say that when I'm chasing a game animal, I have a right to it, and somebody else can't say, hi, you're tired. I'm going to now finish chasing it and slaughter it and eat it. That might be the right rule, but you might want to have to, to treat land as a commons. And if you have a society where part of the year they're growing crops and part of the year they're hunting animals, it would make perfectly reasonable sense to have it be private property part of the year and a commons part of the year. So anyway, that's stuff which I've actually discussed in Thrift and Laws Order, which you can read for free on my webpage. Yep. Tyler Cowen wrote this book, Stubborn Attachments, where he talks about, he makes this sort of moral case for economic growth. He says we should value future life just as much as we value present life. And thus, you know, economic growth gives more resources for our future future kids. Do you, uh, one, does that, that idea resonate with you? And, and two, you, you've talked about and written about how technological progress or an economic pro- growth could lead to some negative uh, scenarios. And can you, can you unpack those? Well, I believe Future Imperfect can also be read from my webpage. And I would think of it exactly as economic growth, but technological change could have negative effects. And this, in a way, goes back to your point about interdependence earlier, that we don't have a very good way of handling situations where most of the effects of my action apply to many other people. That if the effects of my action produce a benefit for one other person, suppose I'm a physician and I'm healing your broken arm or something, we can handle that quite well with the market. You pay me for my services. We have some other cases where we handle it much more clumsily through tort law, where I'm taking, I'm imposing costs on you, you sue me. It gets very, very hard to handle it if my action is affecting 100,000 people spread over, you know, a thousand mile radius of where I am. Technological change can make the situation either better or worse. That there may be some technological changes which make it easier to isolate the effects of my action or to observe the effects of my action. And there may be other technological changes which have the opposite effect, which result in my action having a wider range. So let's go back to global warming. As I was suggesting earlier, if global warming really is a serious problem, it may be an insoluble one because of the fact that if it's a serious problem, then every time I do anything that produces CO2, that's producing costs spread across the human population, human race, basically, and we have no good way, no good mechanism of handling that. So you could imagine various technological changes that could make us much worse off. And as it happens, my guess is that global warming isn't one of them, but it logically could be. And I discuss that back when I wrote Future Imperfect, I then gave a talk on it when it was published at Google. And I started out by saying that I thought global warming was a pretty wimpy catastrophe. You know, so the sea level rises by a few feet, temperature goes up by a few degrees centigrade in 100 years, 
I've got three different ways of wiping out the human race faster than that. And the three ways that I discussed were artificial intelligence, that if we actually can produce programmed computers that are human level intelligence, and if they keep getting smarter and we don't, then in a couple of decades, we're gerbils and we better hope they like pets. Uh, and another one was nanotechnology where there is what people in that field refer to as the gray goo scenario, where somebody produces a nanotech device whose only purpose in life is to create everything it sees in the environment into copies of itself. And it turns the whole surface of the earth into gray goo in two weeks or a month or something. And then there's biotech where you can imagine tailored diseases of various sorts that, that one of the, the, Good things about diseases is that they're basically designed not to kill us uh, because a parasite prefers not to kill its host. Uh, And that suggests that if you had diseases that were designed by people, they could be much worse than the diseases that are designed by nature, uh, in effect. So those are three different ways things could go wrong. And I don't think I see any good way of preventing any of them but one can try to develop technologies in ways which are, as it were, defensive rather than aggressive, rather than offensive technologies, and hope that that works well enough. Let's talk about something like artificial intelligence. Maybe it's similar to nuclear proliferation, although I'm not sure, where there's a short-term benefit advancing it, and you you make a lot of money, but there's sort of a long-term benefit to being more conservative about how you do it. And so in a market-based society, how do you... But the problem isn't short-term versus long-term. The problem is the effect on me versus the effect on others. Right? Markets take account of long-term effects. People plant hardwood trees. But from the standpoint of the individual, uh, when I make my AI a little bit better, the result is that I make more money speculating on the stock market, if that's what the AI is doing. And the risk of super intelligent AIs that wipe us out which is a cost to everybody, goes up by a tiny, tiny, tiny amount. So it's very likely, I could be perfectly rational and I could say, all right, I am 10 units better off for making this improvement in AI and a hundredth of a unit worse off. Now, since there are 8 billion people doing this, on net, we could all be a whole lot worse off, not a whole lot better off. Uh, But that doesn't affect my actions. My actions are going to be determined by the effect on my objectives. And my objectives probably aren't limited to my welfare, but they certainly aren't equally weighting the welfare of all 8 billion people out there. Yeah. I've been watching basketball recently. I was watching the NBA finals and there was this view I could see where anytime someone got the ball, they immediately had the stats of what percentage chance they had of making a shot anywhere they were on the floor. And so imagine that sort of analogy to if we could calculate people's utility, Uh, we could quantify short-term, medium-term, long-term utility from any sort of decision. We had that technology to be able to to do that. Would we be able to internalize that into into markets somehow if we knew the effect our choices had on other people or market decisions? Well, why is it in my interest to pay attention to the effect on other people? It might not be, but would, would we have a collective interest to somehow redesign our markets in some way, I guess. Or, I'm not see what you're describing, how you would do it. That is, to me, the closest we have to that is what we already have, namely my measure of the effects on your utility of something is what you're willing to pay me for it. If you imagine that I'm producing a service or a good that you can consume. Uh, so in that sense, the market is already doing what you're saying. It's just it does it imperfectly. And, and are you saying that 
that world where we can perfectly quantify utility is just impossible or extremely unlikely, or that even if we could do that, it would still be suboptimal relative. I'm to saying that even, even if you could perfectly observe everybody's utility from every outcome that doesn't solve the problem because the individual actor is still going to act in terms of his utility. That's in some sense, the definition of utility for an economist, not in terms of everybody's utility. Now, if you could perfectly calculate everybody's utility and had an infinite amount of computing power, then you could have a centralized system which maximized total utility. But that doesn't seem to me a very interesting hypothetical since I don't see how you can do either of those two things. Uh, I'm, I'm curious for your your perceptions of uh, income share agreements, with I, I, which I believe uh, your your father uh, popularized. And I just read this uh, science fiction book called The Unincorporated Man, uh, which is uh, about... I've heard of it, but haven't read it. Yeah, a, a society where everyone is owned, uh, majority owned by other people. And uh, corp- corporations own the money supply. There's you know dozens of different currencies, and, and corporations basically own people. And as a result, corporation owns you. That means that if you do some work and it makes a hundred dollars, the corporation gets sixty dollars of that. Is that right? Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Um, it has the usual problem that we associate uh, with taxes and sharecropping and everything else. That if doing the work costs me eighty dollars. Uh, in terms of the fact that I'd rather be lying in bed reading a book, then I won't do it because I'm only getting $60 of the 100 but I should do it in terms of our joint interest because it's producing a $100 benefit. So I'm not sure how you get around that, that problem. Well, I'm curious of, of just your thoughts on income share agreements. Generally, they're all sort of the rage in Silicon Valley. And now, uh, because there's a startup Lambda school that lets people go to school for free instead of paying debt, you pay a percentage of income. But there are costs and benefits to them. But it's really the same issue as sharecropping, which economists have been worrying about for 200-some years, that sharecropping, you've got a farmer who's cultivating land, a certain share of the crop goes to the landlord. That has the disadvantage that, again, if it costs him $100 to produce $120 worth of output, he won't do it because he's only getting $60, about $120, whatever the, whatever the numbers are. But there may be advantages as well because it means, as opposed to his paying a fixed rent, it means that he's less at risk of a bad harvest, In which, because in a bad harvest, the rent might be larger than the total income, whereas this way he's sharing the risk with his landlord. There might be a case where the landlord is producing some inputs. Maybe the landlord has expertise that he can provide, or the landlord is lending some heavy equipment to his tenants from time to time. So that, you know, it's, all of this is complicated stuff, but it's complicated stuff that economists have been thinking about for a long time. And similarly here, that if you say, I don't have a way of financing my education, or if you say, I mean, one argument would be, you say you will train me to get a good job in Silicon Valley. If the terms of this are, I pay you $1,000 and you teach me, you don't care very much whether it really works. Maybe you care because you think your reputation will be affected. But if the reputational effects, if it's hard for people to know, then you might do a lousy job of teaching me, which will be really cheap for you. You get $1,000 and I end up $1,000 out. So then the argument is that by doing an income share agreement, I, the people providing the training, it is in my interest to provide training that will really raise your income because that's how I'm getting my money. So that would be one reason for it. A different reason for it would be that you don't have $1,000. Think about 
the way in which in the 18th century, I think even early 19th century, a lot of people immigrated to the U.S. They did it by a deal with a ship captain where the ship captain says, all right, when you get to America, I'll pay the cost of getting you here. When you get to America, I'm going to auction you off as an indentured servant. And it's going to be a reverse auction in the sense that you will go to whatever employer is willing to pay the fixed amount we've agreed on for the shortest term of service. And that was a way in which sizable numbers of people got to America. Well, that's essentially that it's not the same term because they're getting no salary, but they're, but, but obviously the employer is going to have to pay them and he's got to feed them and clothe them and house them and so forth. But it's again, a case where people who can't finance the trip themselves are financing it in effect by borrowing against their future income. So that, you know, it's like most arrangements, it's got costs and benefits and you can't say in advance whether it's good or bad. The idea of a quality of outcome uh, based on sort of the social communism experiments have, uh, is becoming less and less in favor, but people are still sort of clinging on to this concept of a uh, quality of opportunity. Uh, and I, I just, I don't see a, a, a mechanism to actually do this besides taking, you know, sort of large inheritance taxes or, or taking money away from people who've done very well so that they can't, they can't advantage their kids in some way. What do you think about this concept? Going back, you were talking about equality. And I don't really see equality by itself as a value. That I think for poor people to get richer is a good thing, but I don't think it stops being a good thing if rich people get even more richer. So it seems to, at least to me. Now, what will actually happen, you don't know. Uh, I gather there is evidence that at the national level, incomes are becoming more unequal, while at the world level, they're becoming more equal, as far as I can tell. That if you think about what's happened to China, for example, China. Basically, everybody in China is dirt, dirt poor in, in 1970, maybe even 1980. At this point, people in China on average are a good deal poorer than we are, but they're a whole lot, enormously richer than they were when Mao died. So that's a sizable reduction in world inequality. And I think in general, my impression is that poor countries are getting rich rather faster than rich countries are. At this point. So that's a case where inequality is going down, but it seems to be the important thing. It would be even better if China got richer and we got richer. And they don't see that reducing qualities, it's inequality is itself a, a value as opposed to reducing poverty. Yeah. yeah. So if other people are you know fighting for if some people are fighting for a sort of a just and equitable society, or you fight more for a rich and prosperous society. Yeah, I, I, I find knowing what justice is in that context, what justice outcomes is, I mean if you really believe in equality, then presumably everybody in the developed world should throw away 95% of his income because after all, most people in the history of the world were living at something like 120th of our standard of living. And why should we be, why should we have this unequal situation where we're this rich compared to them? Yeah. Do you resonate with the John Rawls veil of ignorance that we should create a society in which no matter I where we were the, born? The, the version of John, the version of the veil of ignorance that I at least got from reading Rawls' book a long time ago, I think makes no sense at all, because it depends on claiming that if you don't know who you're going to be, you will decide as if you were certain you were going to be the worst off person. It's assuming infinite risk aversion. Now, the veil of ignorance was done earlier by Harsanyi, and Harsanyi, unlike Rawls, got it right. That is, Harsanyi makes what seems to me the most reasonable assumption which is that behind the veil of ignorance, you assume you have an equal chance of being anybody. 
And that gives you utilitarianism. If you think at least about von Neumann's definition of utility, where the way in which you make utility quantitative is by thinking in terms of the value of lotteries, the value of that the utility of 50% probability of outcome A and 50% probability of outcome B is exactly the average between the utility of those two and similarly for all other, all other gambles. Then using that definition of utility behind the Harsanyi version of the veil of ignorance, you would say, all right, I want to maximize average utility because the average utility of the population is the utility to me of an equal chance of being a mem- any member of the population. And that seems to me to make a good deal more sense than at least, now I know various people take roles seriously, but I haven't figured out why, because I haven't found anybody who is actually willing to defend the argument as he originally made it in in theory of justice. Why is, uh, you've studied some evolutionary psychology too, or or certainly written about it. Why is equality a term that that people care so much about? You seem to be... uh, I understand. I don't know. It's a good question. That is one possible answer is that people are assuming not a, people are assuming as it were a zero sum interaction. So if you say, look, if uh, your being rich makes me poor, or more plausibly, if your being rich gives you the power to make me poor, right? You could certainly see why you might be worried about being the wimp in a tribe full of big, strong people that you're likely to get beaten up and have your stuff taken away from you and so forth and so on. So that might be part of why people are that way. But I really can't say that I have a very clear idea of why people have, to the degree they do it, a belief in equality of various sorts. That is actually com- compelling in some ways. I, I, I sometimes you think about we were wired to um, adapt and act within a zero-sum, you know, scarce world. And now we are, you know... But it is scarcity. What you can argue that explains some of it is that there is one respect in which we're in a zero-sum world, and that's mate choice. That if you are a man, the fact that another man is a better hunter than you are means that he's going to get the girl you want to get. If you think about the general tendency, it's not really a question of equality, but the tendency of people to think in relative rather than absolute terms. So that when they say, look how many poor people there are in America, and you say, but wait a minute, there's something less than 1% of the population whose real income is lower than the average real income in 1800. Uh, And they say, no, no, but the relevant question is, how does it compare with the average real income now? So that you're thinking as if becoming lower on the totem pole actually makes you worse off, even if the whole totem pole is going up as it were. And that the one context I can see where that does make sense is if you're thinking of people competing for mates, because there what matters, there's a fixed number of potential mates out there, and each person who is better off than you are is in a position to bag a more desirable mate or maybe even more than one mate at your expense. So that may be part of what gives that, that context. Because I can't think of anything else in the primitive world where you really have a fixed resource that after all, if I spend more time gathering berries, I can get berries that you probably wouldn't have gotten. If I spend more time hunting things, I could probably get animals you wouldn't have gotten and so forth. So I don't see other than the, the mate search where you've really got something that looks like a fixed resource. I, I wonder if today uh, there could be a sort of a cultural movement around positive sum that would you know, encourage people to see wealth as a, a positive sum game, but even, even mates, which you just described, you know, 
increasingly than ever due to dating apps, which you talked about earlier, there are ways for you to access many, many more organizations. The sense, the, the sense in which it's not a zero-sum game is that people do not all have the same taste in mates, and consequently you can do a better job of sorting. The way I think I put it in something I uh, I wrote where I was really discussing not this, this issue, but thinking of pairing up uh, of marriage as the market uh, with sort of implicit prices in terms of the terms on which you agree to marry somebody, what you'll do, what she'll do. And the comment I made was that the woman I was now, am still married to, was married to when I wrote it, who I figured was something like a one in 10,000 or maybe one in 100,000 catch. And I didn't have to offer to watch all the dishes because nobody else was pursuing her. Uh, that oddly enough, some people don't react to a clear explanation of a point in calculus as something that makes them fall in love with a woman. Can't understand why. But uh, so, so to the extent that you can do a better job of sorting people, there it's not a zero-sum game. And the whole question, in a sense, essentially, we tend to think of status as a zero-sum game. But it really isn't a fully zero-sum game because there isn't a single uh, measure, as it were. So one of the ways I put it a long time ago was that Harvard, when I was there as an undergraduate, was the perfect society because everybody was at the top of his own ladder. It's exaggeration. But the there were a small number of people who were part of the group who put on plays. From their standpoint, they were what mattered. The real question was, did you get a part? How good a part did you get? The rest of us were just there to be an audience. There were a small number of people that were heavily involved in young Republicans and young Democrats. And what really mattered was whether you got elected to an office in one of those things. And the rest of us were just friends of theirs who they could persuade to come to the critical meeting in order to vote for them. Ditto across a whole lot of other things. Um, and I remember thinking at the time, there was somebody, I had a conversation with someone I think a foreign Pakistani student on some issue having to do with military stuff in that part of the world. And it turned out, if I remember correctly, that he was the son of the Secretary of Defense of Pakistan or whatever the equivalent of that was at the time. And it occurred to me that in a way, Harvard was a more comfortable place for somebody like that, somebody who in his own world was a very high status person, because it was a place where almost everybody in his own world was a high status person. So in that sense, it's not a zero-sum game. Uh, and I think if you look around you, you observe people who in one context are very low-status people. In some narrower context, they're high-status people, and they're focusing their attention on the narrow context. That's what matters to them. So, for example, one of the things I've been involved with for a long time is a group called the Society for Creative Anachronism that does medieval historical recreation. And you could be a very important person in that hobby even though you work in a shoe store as a clerk the rest of the time, but you're putting a lot of your time and effort and, and, and emotion into that hobby. So to you, the fact that you're high status there is much more important than the fact that you're low status somewhere else and ditto for bridge playing, ditto for other hobbies and so forth. And as some people say that the internet has, you know, by orders of magnitude expanded the, the range of, of hobbies and interests and fields and, and, and virtual reality will do it even further where you could be uh, the highest status in something where only you. <laughs> only well, except, well, there are two different cases. The internet means that you can have quite large numbers of people who represent a very small fraction of the world population so that you can, your particular group can be a million people 
which sounds like an awful lot of people, but in an 8 billion person world, that's one person in 8,000. So there can be an awful lot of groups that big. A different thing is you can create the illusion of high status in a context where the other people aren't really people. So if you've played World of Warcraft, and I'm sure it's true in other games, everybody in World of Warcraft is a hero. But then there are all these non-player characters who aren't heroes. Some of them are, but many of them are, who treat you as a hero. So you have the fictional illusion of being a very important person. And if you think about it, that's part of what novels do. The, the novel, you're imagining yourself to be very successful, whatever the protagonist is. There's a interesting three books science fiction series of which the first one is called Torchship uh, by Carl Gallagher. It's self-published essentially, but surprisingly good for a self-published book. I read it several times, three self-published books. And one of the things that's going on in the final volume is what's happening in a rich welfare state society where a whole lot of people who are really at the bottom feel as though they're they're in the middle because they're interacting with essentially non-player characters. Only the trick there is they don't realize it. When they discover it, catastrophe results. But uh, so you can certainly see a way of sort of fooling, a lot of ways of fooling people into feeling they're high status when they aren't. But then you've got other ways in making them actually high status, but only in the small subset of the world that matters to them. And there are lots of examples. If you go back to things like Knights of Columbus or Masons or any of those things, they have their own hierarchies, uh, which let you feel like an important person to them. Now, a different thing that's going on in these things, which isn't really about status, is that people want to feel they matter. And if your reference group is 300 million Americans, you don't matter. You're going to have very, unless you're an extraordinarily successful person, you're going to have almost no effect on that. If your reference group is your small firm, on the other hand, where when you do something good, the other people in that firm appreciate it, and they're you know grateful to you for having gotten them a big sale or, or you know, done something else or improved the product. Or if your reference group are your colleagues at the university in your department, then so that we, one of the things we do, which I think is the sensible solution to the problems of a big society, is to have typically non-geographical villages, as it were. That if you grew up in an ordinary village 500 years ago, if you live a decent life, by the time you're an old person, you're important. People know who you are, they admire you, they trust you, and so forth. You can do the same thing if your village is on the internet. I'm thinking partly one of the one of my main activities in the internet is participating in a blog called Slate Star Codex. I don't know if you've read it, but it's a oh, yeah, very read almost every post ever. Yeah. What? I read yeah. every, yeah, I'm a huge fan. Yes. I've seen your comments. But one of the things that have struck me in, about Slate Star Codex is that there are some people, I'm thinking in particular of one woman, who is a very valuable contributor, who most of us really like and look up to, and who, as far as I can tell, is a middle-level or maybe lower-middle-level civil servant in Ireland, who is not very rich, is, you know, in a sense, seen from the outside as a not quite a failure, but not a success. And yet in this world, which she's got to spend a lot of time in from the amount of posting she does, she's one of the heroes. Uh, and there are other people like that. That is, so, so, so that gives you, day shock, if you're not, if you've read it, you should know. She's really neat. She's, she's self-educated. She's very, very well self-educated. Some of her opinions are wrong, in my opinion, but that's just fine. It would be a boring world where everybody agreed with me. Uh, but she's an imp- intellectually impressive person. She writes very well. 
so that's one of the nice things about that world that you can do that. I have uh, three, three more questions for you. So first is uh, I read uh, Arnold Kling's three language of politics. His basic premise is that uh, the left and the right are operating from different starting points. The, the left being sort of the noble savage uh, and that we are educated into, into violence the, the right having the idea that we all start in Hobbes' state of, state of nature uh, and that civilization is, is what saves us. Do you stand firmly on the Hobbes' state of nature view? Or do you accept that dichotomy? I don't think, that I, I, don't think I agree with the dichotomy. That is, my impression is that in some contexts, other people are nice and in some contexts they aren't. And in particular, if you get a clearer in-group, out-group division, it's pretty easy to be nasty to the out-group. On the other hand, my impression is that strangers who have nothing against you will generally be nice to you. Sort of my casual experience. So I, yeah, I, I'm not sure that I see any, any neat division. I mean, I don't think it's the case that if you have that, if, I mean, I, I assume that most people will act to maximize their objectives and that I expect other people's objectives to give substantial weight to a few other people, those who are close to them and very low weight to distant strangers. But on the other hand, I'm not sure you could do much better than that because you don't know much about what's in the interest of distant strangers anyway, whereas the people close to you, you do know how you're affecting and to some extent what they want. So, you know, uh, there are certainly circumstances in which people are willing to be pretty nasty to each other. Are you uh, still as optimistic about the Internet uh, as you were when you when you wrote that it would be, uh, you know, it might allow for perfect anonymity? That's the technology, I think, is still works. But but I think as I tried to make clear in the, uh, you're thinking now of a world of strong privacy, probably, which is an old article of mine, that I was describing a possible situation, not an inevitable situation. And it's still possible and not inevitable. There are things pushing in both directions. And what you want is a world where end-to-end public key encryption is the norm. But I don't know if we're going to get that, that world there, obviously. I mean, I remember saying at the time that, that, that I thought the, you know, the NSA had read my article and were trying to stop that world from happening. And that was a joke because the NSA almost certainly saw these potentials earlier than I did. That was sort of their specialty. But I think it's the case, going back to the clipper chip controversy quite a long time ago, that, that some people in the sort of high-tech intelligence security area saw that public key encryption could greatly reduce the ability of governments to control things and saw that as a, as a risk, not a, not an opportunity. And at the same time, other people go the other way. I, I'm optimistic about what you could get, but I don't really know what you're going to get. Yeah. And part of the, one of the points I try to make in Future Imperfect is that because of technological change, the future is radically uncertain that one can imagine a whole lot of possible futures. So in Future Imperfect, I tr- with, with, I think, one exception, I limited myself to about 30 years into the future on the grounds that beyond that, my crystal ball got full of mist, so to speak. And I think the exception was space flight on the grounds that if you're going to write about future stuff, you've got to write about space flight. And I thought the interesting things were likely to take more than 30 years, although I could be wrong about that. Speaking of the future, you know, we, we've, t- we've spent a lot of time in this podcast talking about just some of the topics of which you've, uh, you've spent a few decades really wrestling with and, and writing about and thinking about. What are, uh, if you look at the, the next decade or, or next couple decades, what are sort of the, the central questions uh, that, you, that you're going to be wrestling with, maybe that you have to want to go deeper on? I don't know. At the moment, 
uh, I've almost finished my third novel, and I've almost finished converting my old price theory textbook into a new edition that will be available as a Kindle for about $10 because I discovered that price theory textbooks usually cost $100, which strikes me as unreasonable. I've got a project for a book or a web page on short works of literature that have interesting economic insights embedded in them. So those are my sort of current projects. I have a third novel that's a sequel to the one I'm almost finished with in my head, which I might write. I also have two novels I probably won't write that are the sequels to my first novel, which is an entirely different world and context, but I might do that. I really don't know what I'm going to be doing. And a lot of it depends on whether anybody solves the aging problem in time for me because I'm 74. So how long I have, you know, if I'm pessimistic, I've got five years before my brain starts to go. So maybe my brain started to go already, hard to tell. And optimistic, I've got about 20 years, 25 years. Coase, I think, may have been about 100 when he finished his last book. And it's a good book. Uh, intelligent book, like everything of Coase's. On the other hand, if they manage to solve the aging problem, I could have another century or two, which would be very nice. But I really don't know what I'm going to be thinking about, that I don't sort of plan grand things along. The, the, my most recent book actually published The Legal Systems Very Different, came out of a seminar that I taught every other year for quite a while at the law school. And that came out of the fact that I had written two different articles, one on saga period Iceland and one on 18th century England, in each of which I was looking at an odd legal system and trying to understand it. And I found that interesting and productive. And I decided that I ought to do more of that kind of work because I had done it for years. And you then have the commitment problem. How do you make yourself do things? So what I did was to announce that I was teaching a seminar next year on legal systems very different than ours, at which point I had to do the research to have enough stuff to teach the seminar, and that eventually produced a book. So I'm not teaching anymore, so I don't have that me mechanism available for committing myself. And at this point, I can't think of any projects that I'm especially committed to for the future other than the books that I've already got to some extent in my head, uh, which I've just described. Uh, you know, I'm curious how you uh, see world, a world in which your ideas become mainstream. <laughs> um, Anarcho-capitalist ideas become mainstream. Some people say it's, it, hey, maybe it's Patry's, uh, you know, charter city folk experiments that uh, present alternatives. Maybe it's Bitcoin or Zcash uh, reducing government power over the money supply. It, what, you know, what, how does government exert influences by controlling the money and, and, milita and military? I don't, I, that is, Bitcoin is a really neat idea, but what's important, I think, is not reducing the government's power over the money supply. That can do a certain amount of damage, uh, but it is the possibility of making it much harder for governments to pay attention, for governments to observe economic transactions. So that something, Bitcoin is in a certain sense the least the, the least anonymous currency that's ever existed since all transactions are public information. Public information between accounts, not between people, but with a little bit of effort, a, somebody who's watching you can probably figure out which accounts are which people. And I gather from what I'm told that none of the current attempts at anonymous digital currency are going to give you the sort of really anonymous digital currency that I discussed in the past, which because the, ver the Chalmian digital currency I discussed in the past requires an issuer. 
And the beauty of Bitcoin is that it doesn't require an issuer. And therefore, the government can't shut it down by just saying, we'll go to whatever country the bank is in and close that bank down. So there, the cryptocurrencies are a really neat idea. And I gather people think that you can at least make them relatively anonymous, make it fairly costly to observe you, and that would be a large improvement. But I think that's more important than the fact that the money supply is under government control. After all, we had centuries when the money supply wasn't under government control because there was a world gold standard or a silver standard for that matter. Um, that's a non-government control money. So, no, I think that one possibility is some version of cyber anarchy, some version or crypto anarchy, if you want to call it, that some system where what's hap- most of the important stuff that's happening is happening online and online is mostly unobservable to third parties due to encryption. That's one possibility. Another possibility is that we will gradually move towards freer societies, just as England, say, in the early 19th century did. And that could be partly a result of ideas spreading uh, and partly a result of technological changes, which make it harder for governments to control people or easier for people to coordinate outside or whatever. All of that stuff is very hard to predict, and I don't think I can, can predict it. Uh, and you might get the sort of thing that Patry, well, Patry isn't really a central figure. Patry is a central figure in the seasteading idea, but he's involved with the uh, new nations kind of stuff. You might get a situation in which you've got quite a lot of what are in effect microstates. And at least for people who can move around easily, you then get a competitive market for, for governments. All of those things could happen, but what's going to happen? I don't know. And answer the last question. If if uh, fifty years from now, let's say we, we people didn't figure out a longevity solution, but uh, you know someone came back from the past and 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 to, we figured out time travel somehow and told you that uh, one of your ideas had really taken off and and was being implemented. It was just one of them. It wasn't sort of the. Uh, what, what do you? What would you be most happy if uh, if that idea was? What I most want to know was whether it had actually worked. <laughs> that in general, I am a theorist, not a political entrepreneur. And part of the reason is that I don't know what's right. I have, I think, good reasons to believe certain things, but they could be wrong. And I therefore don't really feel comfortable saying, well, I'm going to set things up in this way because maybe I'll do a whole lot of damage. What I'd much rather do is say, I will put ideas out and let other people try to absorb the ideas and see if they help them figure out how to do things. And I hope they do, but I don't know if they will. But, but which idea? I, su- I suppose uh, that, that the idea I'd, be, I'd most like to see work is in anarcho-capitalism along the particular lines that I sketched it. Yeah, I think that's right. The, I'm not sure there are other ideas of mine that you can really talk about implementing, that you know, I've done a, a lot of thinking about legal systems and uh, various stuff of that sort, but it's not so much implementing, but just other people absorbing my ideas and maybe having their what they do affected by it. Uh, it's a great place to close. Uh, my guest today has been David Friedman. Uh, you can find his his works, uh, DavidDFriedman.com, his books, uh, Machinery Freedom, uh, and, and many, uh, many others. David, it's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you for coming on the show. Thank you. It was fun. If you're an early stage entrepreneur, we'd love to hear from you. Please hit us up at villageglobal.vc slash network catalyst. 